Welcome to the Legendarium. I, I don't know if you've read Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. Uh, no. Okay, so... Uh, Name in- any Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> I have not read it. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I am Craig Hanks, and this is the Legendarium Podcast. Over there, it's Todd Wenty, who's the only one here, so he doesn't merit an insult today. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's all I have to do to not get insulted? Exactly. I may never do a cast with Ken again. <laughs> yeah. I love you, Ken, but I love my self-esteem more. Oh, no, no. We we heartily dislike self-esteem here in this room. <laughs> uh, let's see. So this is episode 118, and uh, we're discussing Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. This is a, a short sci-fi story that was written back in 1938, and... It's the story upon which was based The Thing, and there have been a few movie adaptations of that, so you're probably familiar with that. So if you haven't read it, don't worry about it. It's um, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to spoil. It's just a really interesting little story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a quick read, so if you want to read it before you listen to this, I'll go ahead and link to a PDF version of it in our show notes and on the website so you can go check it out there uh read it. it's about it's 40 pages yeah on the pdf so it's not nothing crazy take you an hour yeah uh well maybe a little more than that <laughs> on fast read. but uh before we dive into that i will just do a little bit of housekeeping i i must apologize we missed two weeks in a row we were going to do a 2016 wrap up and then we thought we'd rather not so we didn't. So we, we just thought, you know what, there there are five weekends in January. We'll just make sure we do four episodes. And then the next weekend after that, everybody was sick to death. And so here we are, three weeks since our last uh, broadcast. And I apologize for that, but hopefully this makes up for it. And we will be back with the Wheel of Time and some other uh, stuff coming soon. I know we've got a Brandon Sanderson story on the docket, so we'll be doing that soon as well. Uh, patreon.com slash legendary and please support the podcast there this speaking of missing two weeks in a row this is why we do it on a per episode basis mm-hmm. patreon gives you a, a, a choice you can go per episode or per month uh, when you're asking people for donations and i thought you know there are going to be times when stuff happens and we don't have as many episodes in a month and so i didn't want to feel like i was ripping anybody off so when you go to patreon.com it says you know do you want to give a dollar per episode that's why i did it that way and so hopefully that works for everybody if you do want to just dump money on us every single month then i can give you uh private instructions on how to do that uh i'm sure plenty of people will take me up on that uh last thing go to <laughs> facebook.com slash i think it's the legendarium facebook.com slash the legendarium we are tantalizingly close to a thousand likes uh, it just keeps creeping up uh, keep people keep finding us but they're trickling in so if maybe you can't give us any monetary aid on patreon I would still very much appreciate if you go to our Facebook page and share that with your friends, suggest that with anybody who enjoys fantasy or science fiction literature. Um, I am also going to be going onto our Facebook page soon and putting a poll up to see what the reaction would be for uh, for people who 
enjoy these sci-fi episodes especially would it be worth it if we did a spin-off series so uh, it's not the uh, not the regular legendary podcast but what if we did another podcast that was centered around sci-fi instead of fantasy uh, literature what would people think of that and uh, would you listen so i'm going to be putting a poll up there soon uh, and would appreciate everybody's responses on that or you can private message me if you feel really strongly one way or the other <laughs> and and let me know with your name attached that way anyway i think that about does it todd so maybe we should talk about that's how, that's all the housekeeping that's that's a lot of housekeeping that was a lot <laughs> yes it is yeah sorry about that um that's what happens when you miss freaking three weeks in a row i know right it, yeah. yeah anyway um no that's not the only thing oh <gasps> Okay. Okay. That's that's fine. That's fine. You got me all teased. No, and, this no. was okay. This no, was a, this this is a good one. I have to say thank you to the people who have been on Patreon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Absolutely. why? Absolutely. Two reasons. Did we hit? No, 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 no. It's well, we did hit our one hundred dollars per episode goal. So thank you very, very much very for cool. everybody who got there. Very cool. And as soon as we did that, I promised a studio equipment upgrade, and I have started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have started that process. It's it's actually a little kind of creepy when you come into the room and he's uh, gazing the microphone, gazing lovingly at a microphone. It's 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 a little, it's a little icky. It's um so. I am currently speaking into a microphone that costs more than all the other ones in the room combined, and we are going to upgrade all of them that way. And, and none of us will ever use it again. It's just that <laughs> icky. Uh, no, it's going to be it's going to be very great. I I feel like this is a worthwhile investment, and it's our Patreon donors who have made it possible. So you may not notice a ton of um, difference right now because it's only one of the mics that have uh, made the jump. But by the time we get all four of them upgraded to this model, it's going to be quite the aural experience. I'm glad you said it that way. Yes. <laughs> all right. So again, thank you very, very much, Patreon donors, for making that possible. We always want to make the show better for you, better, easier to listen to. Uh, if not better in content, because we just keep getting dumber with age, frankly. Yeah, there's, there's only so much we can do to make Craig sound pleasant. But yeah. this, I think, goes a long way. <laughs> well, all right, you go ahead and sound pleasant now, Todd. Um, talk about Who Goes There by J.W. Campbell. I rarely sound pleasant. All right, all right, here we go, here we go. Um, and, and as all of you know, these introductions, let's be honest, Craig does the best introductions. The rest of us make valiant attempts at it. So here we go. What happens when something malicious, hateful, and eminently and perfectly capable and adaptable inserts itself into a small group of isolated, driven scientists? For the answer, look no further than J.W. Campbell's classic sci-fi horror novella, Who Goes There? This story, originally published in 1938, serves as the source material for three movie adaptations, the most commercially successful and arguably best being John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing, starring Kurt Russell. The story begins with a giant alien creature described with three red eyes, blue skin, and worm-like hair thawing in an Antarctic research camp while the members of the camp try to decide what to do with it. At the insistence of Blair, a biologist, the team decides that the thing can't be alive and thawing it will give them a chance to study it. Thaw it they do, and gradually terror and disaster begin to unfold. The thing disappears and begins wreaking havoc with the camp, its equipment, and the dogs, critical to the team being able to leave the station. When the team members catch the thing attacking the dogs, they make a chilling discovery. 
Through its alien biology and telepathy, the thing can perfectly imitate anything it comes in contact with. Blair, the biologist, goes insane and must be isolated to keep from killing the rest of the team, believing that all the rest of them have already been compromised. Thereafter, the novella switches from science fiction to thriller. Paranoia runs rampant in the camp, with each member of the team suspecting his comrades of being a monster. Tests are devised to tell humans from monsters, and as one of them begins to work, the team demonstrates a ferocity that calls into question who is more monstrous, the thing or the men who are desperate to keep from becoming its prey. While dated in some ways, Who Goes There is a fine, dare I say, delightful science fiction story that continues to be enjoyable today. You have a, a twisted sense of delight, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> it's, I will admit, it's really, really good. I just don't know if I would have said delightful. Oh, the, the, there is there is a line, and and I laugh at it every time, and it's just it's really icky. It's the uh, it's it's the description of when they discover. Uh, Conant is one of the is is uh, is one of the compromised individuals. Right, and they and and it says I think in the book if I'm remembering right they dive on him and without any implements tear him to pieces. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Whoa. yeah, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> Speaking of which, spoiler alert. Oh yeah, sorry. But... <laughs> no, it's fine. I think I, I gave some warning, but yeah, we will just go ahead and give away the ending. This creature is able to. Uh, look like it's able to perfectly imitate any living thing and i guess its cellular structure is infinitely malleable and it can read minds yes and and each cell is in each cell can act independently of the rest of the body the rest of the host right and so it only needs the tiniest little piece to start the process to take over and, and and become all all a human being or a dog or whatever or whatever, yeah. One of the things that I loved about this book, and uh, well, actually, let me let me do this. You've this is your first time reading through it, right? Yes. So, what were your initial thoughts? Oh man, it was uh, definitely apparent right away that this was written in the first half of the 20th century, okay, uh, pre World War II, which uh, apparently it was just pre World War II, just barely. But there is something about the the writing style that these guys used. Uh, what gave it away was a, there's a group of men. It's always men, of course. There are very few women unless they're like a buxom blonde on the cover <laughs> of the weird magazine. Always, always. Um, but it's it's a group of men standing around a table and one of them is telling all the rest a story of of how they came across a thing. That seems like a really common device from back then. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. So, so that was really apparent uh, that, that it was an older story. Um, I, so once I got into it, I was loving it, It, but it did take a little while because it's not a modern novel or, or short story or whatever. Uh, it is definitely, like you said, dated in some ways Mm -hmm. and the writing style is one of them. But once I got into the groove of it, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I like about a short story like this is that, and, and this is so different from how I usually operate in reading, but you don't need to know who is who. The characters don't matter. <laughs> Motivations don't matter. Politics don't matter. All that matters is that there's a group of people, there's an event, and they must figure out how to get themselves out of the, the situation. Yeah. And that's it. It's super, super simple. And it's just kind of a vehicle for this guy, Campbell, to flex his 
creative muscles, I yes. guess you would say, right? So that was a lot of fun. When when um, when I first came across this, uh, and and I was I was I had the opportunity. This is my second time, third time, fourth. I don't know how many times I've read this this story now. A few. Um, but my first time was uh, right after the movie The Thing was announced. And I actually remember uh, some of you that live in the United States, uh, I, I think they still do the scholastic book clubs. And you can, you know, in your in your classroom, you can, you get a little handout and then you can bring back five bucks or whatever and, and order books and they're delivered to your classroom. Uh, I bought, a, uh, I bought a, a book called Star Streak where they published this story and a bunch of newer science fiction short stories. Um, 1982. I'm 13 years old. Oh man, this would blow your mind. At I, 13. I I read this at 13, and I gotta tell you, this was the first book that I said to myself, I have to have all the lights on when I'm reading it because it was just a little <laughs> too freaky. Um, and, and then, of course, knowing that it was based on the movie The The Thing, I went back later and finally found it on cable television on a Saturday afternoon a couple of years later and watched the movie. It was the first time in my life that I had an experience where I said, oh, I thought it was going to be so much better because the book was different than what the movie was. Um, and so in, in my reading, so for those of you who have who have seen uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, um, wonderful adaptation. Which I almost watched last night. And then I thought, you know what? I just want to talk about the the story. Wait, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll I, watch it tonight, maybe. Highly recommend it. I I I I enjoyed the film, but it was my first experience the the first experience that I had in my life of reading a book, seeing a movie, and saying, "Oh, they are different. They are not the same." And oh, okay. I have to remember that. Um, and and as as many of you are aware uh, that have listened to us in the past, that's one of the things that I try to do when I'm when I'm watching adaptations is I try to say, okay, how is you know how can I treat them independently and look at them as their own creations, even when they're supposed to be sharing the same material. So um, that was interesting for me on my initial response. My second, third, my subsequent readings of it. This is one of my all-time favorite books. For or, or favorite stories for trying to keep track of the spots where everything happens. Uh, so, so let me ask you this question: um, As you were reading through it, um, and and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the story, and then maybe we'll talk about some of our other points, the the things that we normally talk about. We we'll dissect it and we'll have some fun. But but this is this is one of the things about the story that I've always loved and I always had fun with. At what point is Blair? Oh, I see. So Blair is the uh, the biologist. He's the and biologist, they, and they lock him in the room. And he was there in the shed or whatever. They lock him in the in the in the shed down the down the way, um, and he was there at the time that the monster was discovered. Okay, but who else was? So was McCready, right? Uh, McCready was there. Um, I'm trying to remember all the characters that were there. Um, Conant was not. Um, Gary, I think, was... But who was there when the dogfight happened? Okay, that was Gary Okay. and McReady, but Gary was the first one in. To the dogfight? To the dogfight. Okay. Um, and so you start looking at, if I'm remembering correctly, you start looking at all of these moments and you start saying, ooh, was that the moment when... It, no, was it... 
Was it this? No. no. <laughs> so what I'm hearing then is, uh, and I'll get back to your question in a minute, but what I'm hearing is that there is plenty of stuff there. I, I was just talking about how the characters don't matter, names don't matter, thing. You know, the only thing that matters is the this event that happens. Maybe that's maybe that's true, and it made for a good surface read for me. But it sounds like I could go back a few times and have a lot of fun with it. You could. Um, one of the one of the moments that I and and I've read this now enough that I've formed my own opinion. Of course, uh, J.W. Campbell is long since passed away. Uh, bless his heart, and thank you so much for your contributions to us, sir. Um, but uh, I I would love to talk to him and ask him if my assumption is correct that. Uh, because I because I have the feeling that Blair Blair uh, one of the things that happens early in the who who's the one standing guard as it's thawing Conant oh okay yeah and, and so he's definitely and Blair is in the same room with him because uh. Conant demanded you have to stay up here with me while this thing thaws out it's your pet right um, so it's then it's when it thaws out well and that's what I wonder I wonder if. Um, I wonder if Conant is actually compromised. I've, I've, I've kind of wondered if the thing was able to exert telepathic control on Blair earlier, uh, because Blair had all of these nightmares, uh, was talking about the nightmares that he was having and about all of the, 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 uh, expressions or the experiences that he was having. And he was so much a proponent for keeping the thing alive. Everybody else was like, you know what, we may as well just, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And and Blair was this huge proponent for, no, we could study it. We could learn about it. We could learn all these things. Yeah, thought out, thought out, guys. Thought I, out. I, I, I okay. wonder. So, so it, it took over his mind before it took over his body then? See, that's what I wonder. And that's that's what I, that's what I would love to and, – and I'm sure that there are people out there that have probably found some – uh, reference. They're already looking it up, and they're already finding some uh, <laughs> some uh, scholarly treatise that says no, that's not what J.W. Campbell meant at all, and that's fine. Um, but that's one of those pieces as I read it. I wonder if that happened first. I wonder what happens first—that he took over control, or that he, uh, or or that he the the thing, the monster, just capitalized on Blair's um, passion Existing for discovery. Neuroses. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that's really interesting too. And you mentioned it in, uh, in your comments, it, it's always a group of guys. Um, and of course this is a scientific research expedition. So your normal alpha males of who's going to be the strong guy, who's going to be the hero, all those kinds of things. I mean, there's a couple of those. McCready is described as basically a bronze god, god, right? <laughs> and the other one, uh, I think, uh, I think Gary was described as iron, where where, right. where McCready was bronze, Gary was iron, um, and and yet at the same time, you've got all of these other people who are very brainy. They're the best scientific minds, supposedly, in some of their respective areas, and so you have to wonder the if, better to break down with if that is one of those pieces that um, that as J. W. Campbell is putting this together calling into question the idea that, you know what, testosterone and and arrogance aren't the only things that go together. Pride and arrogance may often go together. The desire for recognition in your own individual field, while it may not necessarily be connected to testosterone, certainly seems to drive questionable decisions all along the way. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't get a lot of that stuff, <laughs> to be honest. And I mean, it's... It, <sighs> On a first reading, I didn't either. Yeah. But but as I, like I say, as I look back on it and I go back and I go through it again, there are little things that I catch. That's one of them. Uh, and the idea of trying to find the exact moment where I think people were taken over. 
Um, that's fun. It, it's 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 very much like um, I, I don't know if you've read Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. Uh, no. Okay, so uh, name uh, any Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> I have not read it. So in in Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, there is a process by which she kills off characters one by one. Right in the in the Ten Little Indians manner. Ten little you know Ten Little Indians. Then there were nine. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And and the goal is uh, one of the things that happens. Sorry, this is a tangent for everybody, but hopefully it <laughs> hopefully it, it gives you some. We're a, we're no stranger to tangents, Todd. Come on, <laughs> especially from me. Yeah. Um, maybe this tells you how my brain works a little bit. Um, Agatha Christie. Uh, one of the things that she was known for doing in her writing was making sure that she gave you all of the clues so that you could know exactly how things happened. They had to be transparent. Uh, as compared with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who always holds on to something, Holmes has pieces of information that nobody else has, which is so frustrating. It's it's a it's, and and there's a that's why Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was never inducted into the Mystery Writers League or the Mystery right, Writers Hall right. of Fame. Uh, but but uh, I've gone back and as I've gone back and reread the story, I've tried to look for it that way to see if J. W. Campbell did the same thing. Did he give us all of the moments? Did he let us see where each person? Where to the main people that got yeah. subsumed? Do we get a chance to see when that happened? When that could have happened? Um, and I, I, it was a fun, it was a fun exercise. Um, I have a couple that I'm not sure even now as I've gone back through and reread how, it again. How many people actually got taken over? So if I remember right, at the end of the at the end of the book, they said that there were 14 left. Oh, out of the 38 that were there. Out of the 38 or 37 that were. Dang. So th- what they do with all the rest of them? ripped them to shreds i guess i just didn't maybe i passed over that somehow i remember them doing that with one of the guys but did it describe them killing all these other guys or did no. it just mention that they had over it just the gets course to the end week? it just gets to the end and it says well and actually the interesting thing about this the terror evolves over this period of a week um uh and they and they make mention of that several times at the end um but the real uh the paranoia develops over that period of a week the suspicion develops over a period of the week but most of the action takes place in a very short period of time they have the initial attack on the dogs early on uh when the thing when the thing first escapes and then they lock up blair they they determine that they're going to be four you know the four people all around with them all the time and then they develop that first test that first serum test with the dogs of trying to figure out how they're going to get blood to react human blood and human right. blood and monster blood right and that test developing the test and incubating the dog inoculating the dog takes almost three or four days right i remember that i, I think he said five days yeah. And then as they're going through that, um, of course, nothing happens except they all sit and stare at each other waiting for the test to be ready. And everybody's afraid to fall asleep because if you fall asleep, then it's going to come get you. There are four people together. And, and I think that's where um, J.W. Campbell makes the jump for, for him and his writing and for us as readers that many of the people are getting knocked off at some point or absorbed as a monster at some point. Most of the named characters, we've got a moment where we can see that they got taken over. Uh, but for the but for some of the other non-named, you know, right. spear carrier on third row, um, <laughs> they they don't get their moment in the in the sun except to except to say, well, yep, we had we had you know thirty eight. Now there are none, you know, kind of a deal. But um, but the, the, all of the all of the real action takes place in about a twelve hour. If if you if depending on how you choose to read it, right. in just a very short period of time from the time that. 
McCready figures out, I think I've got another test that we can do to figure out who's a, who's a monster and who isn't. From that point until the end of the story, it's only about 12 hours. And so all of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that. And of course, this, this goes back to the, to the, um, to the movie, uh, to the 1982 adaptation of The Thing. Um, the, the action on that starts out um, in much the same way, but they escalate much more rapidly to discovering that everybody's been compromised. Right. They also have a smaller team. Um, now, but there's one other thing that's, that's interesting about this. And I, and I wanted to bring this up with, with you and, and see what you think. And maybe some of our listeners will chime in on this too. How do, how does this story compare in your mind to alien? Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. I guess in alien, I don't remember there being a a fear of there there's not a paranoia of the team around you. They're not being taken over by this alien organism. Not at first. Well, it's, maybe I'm remembering the movie wrong then. Alien 2, yeah. we start to be worried about being taken over. In Alien, you start to worry about being killed. Right. That's all I remember. Until at the end they start showing somebody's chest being exploded open. Wasn't that John Hurt? Yeah, I love that moment. That's good. And that was where they were like, so could any of us be infected this way? And then... Right, but okay. But in that case, it's a fear of death versus a fear of, you know... Of uh, whether this, or not this... I'm going to be killed by my buddy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was one of the things I latched onto was this is a story that's all about paranoia. Yeah. Right? It's... Um, and in fact, I was just, I was mentioning before we started, uh, I brought up the movie Bug. Yes. And you were going to say something about that. Yeah. Well, it's it's just, it's kind of a, a similar feeling tale in a lot of ways. A lot of the, the big details are very, very different. There's not a malicious alien trying to take everything over, but, <laughs> but there's a, I'm trying to think, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but so I can't remember, remember who was first, but there's a guy and a girl and it's it's Ashley Judd and uh, and uh, Michael Shannon and one of them oh, is okay. I think it's Michael Shannon holed up in a, a hotel or a motel room really, and he has this debilitating paranoia about bugs. He thinks there are bugs everywhere and they're infecting everything, and so he takes measures to get rid of the bugs. And of course, there are no bugs. It's he's completely crazy, and she takes pity on him. And so she'll visit him every once in a while and see how he's doing. And eventually he pulls her into his uh, his fantasy paranoia land. Really, really crazy. It is it is not a fun movie to watch uh, <laughs> at all. It's it's hard for me to say, oh, I recommend you all go watch Bug. Because I, I don't even remember it being that good a movie. But I do remember it. just that sense of paranoia stuck with mm-hmm. me. And, um, and this movie brought some of that back some of those feelings back that paranoia especially because you're in an enclosed space they will not leave their hotel room in bug and in this they cannot leave the camp yes and so you're in this enclosed space you're trying hard to survive and you don't trust anything around you including your own mind in some cases it seems like there's a couple people who who aren't sure if they themselves are sane and so what's it i think it's mccready who he he slices his thumb and does the blood test on himself and he he says 
you know, I this is how I'm going to prove to you guys that I'm not an alien. But it kind of feels like this is how I'm going to prove to myself that I'm not an alien yeah, maybe at the so. same time. Maybe so. Um, anyway, so it was a, it was a fun exploration of, of paranoia. That was the primary driver for the, for me <laughs> in the story. Um, uh, let's see. So having mentioned that, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, one of my other, one of my other big questions that I always ask about science fiction um, from your perspective. In what way does the science drive the fiction? I, you know, I was going to ask that of you because in this case, it didn't for me. Okay. Um, at all. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. No, that's not true. It's that none of the science in this story was fictional from what I can tell. At least from the 1938 understanding of how biology works. Correct. They didn't, he didn't make anything up. The, he introduced a fantastical element in yes. the alien but there wasn't a science fiction element if that makes sense so and and that's and this is one of the pieces that um that science fiction writers um and that depending on and and depending well, on where you're at within the science fiction community yeah um becomes a real uh, a real hot point of conversation um is does the science have to be uh current in order to for it to be science fiction the element that he that uh that i found introducing the idea of science fiction in this or of, of, of some kind of a twist on current understood science was the question about terrestrial and extraterrestrial life. How are they different? Why do we expect extraterrestrial life to abide the same principles, the same rules, the same laws that terrestrial life does? And that's his question. If we came across, at least as I read it, um, in, in what he's positing on this, um, we have... We have an understanding. Things can't survive. Uh, higher order animals cannot survive frozen. Higher level life cannot survive frozen periods of time. According to the laws of earthly physics. According to our, according to our experience or on earthly this planet, biology, at least. earthly biology, um, viruses can, bacteria can. We've seen mold spores that can do those kinds of things. Those all qualify as lower life. forms of life. But they qualify as life. And so the question then becomes... Does a virus... Isn't there some speculation about whether a virus is alive? I guess it depends on which... That is probably a knife fight that's being held and continually held (laughs) in these academic communities. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, But... But but that's that's the introduction, the idea that somehow when we look at what constitutes life that it is going to have to look the same, react the same, be the same as we experience life. And his, his, uh, his uh, contention is no. It's very likely that it could be very different, that it could have different kinds of rules. You remember we have a, we have a moment where um, early on in the book where they're talking about uh, the appearance, about all of the, all of the things about him, and that the eyes seemed to glow even when he was completely frozen. Um, and and, it, and they kind of describe the worm hair as it, it sounds like it's moving as it's frozen. You can almost see it move even though you know it's frozen. Right. And at one point they talk about Blair knowing that the thing had been communicating with him telepathically all the way from the second base, second magnetic base to the first magnetic base, to the primary magnetic base. And, and that Blair had been aware that the thing had been reading his mind. Um, there's a, there's an interesting idea that 
while it's frozen for 20 million years, so to, uh, supposedly, that it's still alive. It's still conscious. It's still able to um, be aware of its surroundings. Boy, I tell you, if I was frozen for 20 million years and conscious the entire time, I'd, I'd be, be pretty hateful. I'd be wreaking some <laughs> havoc when I got out as well. Yeah. That's, uh, can't, can't blame the poor guy. The other piece of this where science really drives the fiction, drives the story, is, as you were mentioning, the reliance on science to solve the problem. Um, they Did I say that? Uh, not in so many words, but yeah, yeah I'm not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the idea was, um, we're going to discover who's a monster, not by, uh, not by having some kind of a fight, not by locking people away, not by cutting off arms or any of those kinds of things, which is kind of how a big blockbuster would probably do it today. Um, instead they said, no, we're going to, we're going to take five days. We're going to breed. We're going to make sure that one of these dogs is going to have uh, human blood immunity and we're going to do blood tests on it. And that's how we're going to find it out. Um, that and, was one of those things. He really dove into, uh, some detail on that. And I just had to shut off the part of my brain that failed the AP biology <laughs> test and just say, all right, I, I trust that you knew what you were talking about in 1938. That's, so that's fine. And interestingly, um, he, uh, uh, J.W. Campbell, uh, a couple of ideas, a couple of things that might be interesting for, for our readers about him a little bit. He was, uh, he went to MIT uh, and he also went to Duke University, um, but his degree was uh in physics oh i was hoping you were going to say women's studies yeah no they didn't have women's studies back then (laughs) (laughs) he graduated uh graduated in 1932 uh but he didn't graduate with a degree in writing he didn't graduate with a degree in chemistry or biology which seemed so much to drive this conversation this story he graduated with his degree in physics and there's there's one little hint uh, at the other part of of the science fiction, and it and it just it's it's the point where it just starts to bleed into what I love to call space opera, and that's at the very end of the book. Oh, uh, with the when they break the into the fusion shack. reactor. Yeah, yep, the a cold fusion reactor. Um, they said the light wasn't hot, but they it it had burned through the ceiling without scorching anything. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting things that uh, that they that he posited that somehow. Um, other other intelligent species must have figured out somehow to make these things work, which uh, during the 1930s were certainly well beyond the the average Ken of a of a, the Joe walking down the street or Ken or Ken anytime Ken I love you but <laughs> just saying it um, and maybe you'd agree um, a couple of other interesting th- facts about J W Campbell as long as we've kind of gone over to talk about him a little bit he was. Uh, he wrote under three nom de plumes. Uh, you mentioned Don A. Stewart, which was his most famous, but he also wrote under the name of Carl Van Campen and Arthur McCann. I might have heard the name Arthur McCann, but uh, not the second one. So one of the things about uh, about a lot of these writers during this period of time, the early period of the, and, and in some ways the introductory period, the, the golden age of science fiction writing, there were a lot of uh, magazines, a lot of pulp magazines that were publishing these stories on a monthly basis. And sometimes you were under contract to write for one magazine. And so you, if you wanted to get more money, if you wanted to write for somebody else, if they didn't like you writing the story you were trying to write, you wrote under a nom de plume, you sent it off to somebody else and you created an entire different, uh, an entirely different person. Interesting. Okay. So I, my initial thought when I 
because I don't know the history of science fiction and I don't know how that <laughs> stuff works. My uh, my thought was, I wonder if it was some kind of professional suicide to be known as, oh, he's just a pulp sci-fi writer. You know, if you're you you studied at MIT and you do this and that thing professionally, and you're supposed to be studying real science, you <laughs> you know, you whore. There there might have been some of that because but... I I know Tolkien got a lot of that on the fantasy side of things. Yes, uh, his academic life was um, constantly being uh, infringed upon by his fiction. Well, and um, I guess it depends really on where they're where they're. Um primary life was going to lie right um for for many for many writers like jw campbell if they were writing if they were writing fiction especially if they were trying to write science fiction that didn't matter as much because most of them weren't trying to position themselves for writing positions or for uh professorships at universities however one of the things that is interesting is that many of them were trying to uh, while they were trying to write, they they wanted to present an idea that they were not biased. Um, J.W. Campbell probably wrote under his three nom de plumes because he was also an editor for one of the magazines right. where some of the stories might be published. Uh, and that would be a nice way for him to be able to say, hey, if you like, the, you know, for the, everybody else, eh, everybody else, what do you think of the story? We like it. Who wrote it? Uh, some guy. guy. <laughs> but if you like him, you should read my stuff. Yeah. And so it's it's a way that it gives it some, uh, probably probably at least an appearance of, of fairness. Right. Uh, rather than, hey, I control the magazine. I can write anything I want. Yeah. <laughs> um, I made an observation while I was reading this. Okay. Speaking of old-timey weird <laughs> fiction writers, <laughs> uh, you hate Lovecraft. I'm not this, sure that hate this, is the right word for Oh, my gosh. I could, I'll Lovecraft. go back into our archives and pull up the two or three instances <laughs> when you say, oh, I hate Lovecraft. All right, all right, all right. Uh, this is so... Similar. It is very similar. It's so similar. There's an Antarctic <laughs> expedition where in which people encounter yeah, inexpressible yeah, yeah. horror in yeah. the form of ancient life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, buried in the ice. No, anyway, so it's very Lovecraftian. It made me, well, it, I mean, I don't know which came first. I guess Lovecraft did. But <clears throat> uh, it made me think, you know, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. It's not Lovecraft that you hate. It's Lovecraft fans. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. <laughs> which... All the Lovecraft fans out there, I love you. I'm one of you. <laughs> I'm one of you. It is the rabid nature of the Lovecraft fans that I some that that I <laughs> that struggle with. Off. That I struggle with. Uh, <laughs> but but quite frankly, if if you're not a Star Wars or Star Trek fan and you're and you're rabid, sometimes it takes me a while to get used to it. Um, I, I will uh, I will be the first to admit that um, that the definition of the definition of a fanatic is someone who is more excited about something than you are. Um, and that's just a little piece that I found somewhere along the line. So if you're a fanatic about the, about, uh, about the Steelers, um, which would make somebody that like Ken feel very, Ken's a Steelers fan, right? Yeah. I don't care. Ken, Ken would love you. Um, <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a Vikings fan, but I'm not a fanatic about the Vikings. Um, and people who are fanatics about the Vikings, they kind of scare me a little bit. Sa probably more appropriate to say the same thing with Lovecraft. I, I get put off a little bit <laughs> by people whose everything is about Lovecraft. Uh, and, and that's probably accurate. That's probably a fair statement. <laughs> I uh, don't have time to pull it up now. I can't find it. But uh, one of my favorite 
current political writers is Kevin Williamson, and he does. Uh, he wrote a piece a few months ago in which he talked about people who are nerds. Yeah, and he posited that uh, that the definition of a nerd is somebody who seeks completion in any sort of activity, and so in the case of if you're a if you are a Tolkien nerd like me, you can't just read the Lord of the Rings and say I love it. You have to read every word that he ever wrote about okay. something and know everything about his life. You must own what eighty books on the shelf. You have to have posters and you have and to. And ha- we're looking at all of them right yeah. now, ladies and gentlemen. So that's that's a fan, and you can or sorry, not a fan. That's a nerd. So you can be a nerd about economics about or yeah. science or biking or whatever history yes there, you can be a nerd about anything so i think that's maybe yeah yeah so yeah I, I don't know i'm just not a nerd about lovecraft and people who are confuse me have you read at the mountains of madness i have not uh we should read that it's it's a little longer than this one but it's kind of similar uh, let's put it on a Ar- list antarctic expedition and i i think we've got our next one that i've that i want us to do as far as some of our sci-fi stuff yeah. but let's put it on a list let's do it next all right. after that next one all right sounds good uh all right so what else do we want to talk about so there's there's one more thing that i want to that i want to ask um and this this goes along with the idea that we've talked about that the story's a little bit dated what things in this story pulled you out of the story and made it hard for you to continue on Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'll tell you one thing because I didn't, I didn't quite get what was going on. He kept writing about people smiling or grinning. So there's this crazy crap going on. Everybody's unsure of where this monster is and who this monster is. And, uh, and, I started to realize later in the story that they're all just completely insane with paranoia. Uh, but what's happening in the story is it, it's got to be several days in, and I guess they're all just trying to occupy themselves, but they're they're all working on their star charts or whatever it was, and they're, they're working on their scientific projects of all sorts, and they're just kind of grinning and laughing with each other. And I was like, no, no, this... It it felt really um, weird, uncharacteristic of real human behavior in a situation like that. Okay, uh, if let's say you take thirty eight dudes at any time in history and plunk them down in South uh, in Antarctica at the South Pole and have them encounter any alien life, any alien life, it 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 doesn't have to be malicious. I, there is not going to be any jocularity going on. You're gonna freak the the something out you are going to lose your mind um i just don't see that reaction so that pulled me out a little bit okay okay so yeah anything else uh i feel like i'm missing something that should have pulled me out of the story Uh, not necessarily okay not necessarily um for me the the things that um the things that pull me out um and 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 it Less so the first time that I read it and more so as I start to read it now is how dated the technology is. Um, our technology now would be able to identify, for instance, we, we've got uh, tests that would be able to identify human DNA uh, relative or the existence of human DNA, maybe In not sequence seconds, it, yeah. but we can we can identify human blood versus animal blood, all those kinds of things very, very quickly. So the pace of the story was very different based on the technology that was available and occasionally um, and and also the science, the depth that he goes into on the science about how it's going to work and where it's going to work. Um, those things 
those things had a tendency to make me stop and say, now, wait a minute, where am I at in the story? What's going on? Um, and I recognize that for readers coming across this material now, um, that might be something that would pull them out of the story. They have to remember, oh, yeah, this is 1938. This is the this is the beginning half of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I that the other thing that I really struggled with, I struggled with it my first reading. I struggle with it just about every reading. I have to I have to pay attention is keeping all of the characters straight. Um, Which, I, like I said, I just gave up on and said it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I figured out that McCready was the bronze god, and that's about as far as I got. So I will tell you that one time I actually did have Lego characters, and I was positioning my Lego characters <laughs> trying to move them around. You're, you're, yeah, you're not a... You're not a nerd. I'm not a nerd at all. Uh, but uh, but that was that was kind of an interesting deal. And then, then of course, I have, I, rather than characters, I had characters for anybody who had a name, and then I have blocks for the ones that didn't. Nice, um, nice. And smaller blocks for the dogs. Um, oh, but, gosh. <laughs> that remind, I'm sorry. That, speaking of tangents, are you ready for this one? Sure, go ahead. Hey, go, go look up. There's a YouTube video that came out after the first Twilight movie, and it was like, why Twilight sucks so bad. And it's this guy in a really deadpan voice, and he um, compares Bella Swan to a Lego brick because that's how much personality she has. <laughs> and so through the whole through the whole five minute video, it's every time he talks about Bella, it shows a picture of a Lego brick. It's really funny. I'll have to go back and check. That. Oh, it's hilarious. I'll have to check it out. Anyway, sorry. Go on with your point. I no, that was I was going to say. You know, we've I, I I don't. Craig is the one that always has the 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 timer up in front of him. I have no idea how long we've yeah, been we going. Yeah, we got Yeah, we can go five, ten, fifteen more minutes. Okay. Care. So here's the real question that I would ask. How well do you think this, and, and we've asked this question of Brandon Sanderson. Um, we've asked this question of Jules Verne. We've asked this question many times with, with a lot of our different authors. How well do you think this one stands the test of time in the next 50 years? Ooh. Um, okay. Probably about as it does now, maybe a little less. Maybe it, you know, it maybe depends on film adaptations and if they continue. Because you know, I was born in 86 and nobody my age or older saw the thing, obviously. <laughs> um, I, I shouldn't say nobody, but you know, it's I get it. uh, hardly, I get it. hardly a current blockbuster. And so it takes people of your age to take somebody like me and walk me through it and yeah. say, you know, we really should read this. It's really good. Here's why. Okay, Todd, fine. I'll read the story. <laughs> uh, so as long as film adaptations keep going then i could see this story continuing to be read by a few people it'll never again be a bestseller ever yeah and i don't however i mean it's a short story so yeah yeah yeah. um but on on that note this the story itself the way the story is structured you'll see stories like this pop up forever yeah um which leads me to a question of what in the world was going on in 1938? Why was there this story about such paranoia about the guy standing next to you? So this was this was a time. It was before before definitely before the world was terribly worried about communism. Uh, we weren't even all that worried about Nazism as a. Uh, as a population at large, I'm sure there were a few, uh, you know, uh, tacticians out there who were wondering what was going on, but but it wasn't in the water yet, so to speak. And and I wonder about that. What was it that the world was so paranoid about? It wasn't universally uh, 
in, in the water and 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 that's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful question um at, at least from my perspective um a couple of things that were going on because the, i i'll say when i was reading this i thought oh this had to have been written in the 50s because that yeah. this sounds like the way people talked about communism back then. It feels it could, very much like the it 50s. It could be anybody. It could be the guy standing next to you. Yeah. Um, during the nineteen, during the late thirties, um, and and keep in mind, uh, Nazi Germany's uh, not the Nazi Party's rise to power begins in the early thirties, um, and and individuals who were. Uh, the individuals who were probably watching this uh, in the in the population at large would have been educated. Uh, we've got J.W. Campbell attended two universities, has a degree in physics. Uh, they would have been educated. They would have been um, more likely to have been concerned about things beyond the neighborhood. Uh, we're more concerned about things in the world. Right. Again, we go into our we 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 look at our. Uh, at our writers uh, for the period of time and science fiction writers who especially were looking at larger issues of the of the world of the planet uh, but as well as thinking about them beyond um, there was significant concern bubbling even then about the idea of a Nazi fifth column that had already started to infiltrate the United States um, and as we look at um, as I'd, we, I'd love to see some sources on that Okay, I'll see if I can find them for you. Yeah. I can't find them for you right now, but among the among the intelligent, among the uh, among the educated, there was there's concern that how you know how could this happen? Could this happen? Well, because my understanding of the 30s, and now we're getting into a history lesson, a U.S. Sure. history lesson. Sorry about that, but my understanding of the 30s, especially, you know, I don't know about as late as 38, but maybe around 1935 or so was that among the intelligent, it was really quite fashionable to look over across the pond and say, oh, that Mussolini guy, he makes the trains run on time. He, you know, and, and even Hitler at a certain, uh, to a certain point, they, he might not have been led into any polite parties or anything, but they, they looked over there and thought, oh my gosh, look at what he's done with the German economy. They are, they are booming. For some, and uh, and there were calls in among the American intelligentsia that you're talking about for fascism to be brought to the United States in you know whatever form it would be accepted here. And and at the same time, whenever you have those calls, you always have an opposition. Sure. And so that's the the and the opposition generally came from um, from within um, the communities that were. Uh, that were more artistic, that were more educated, and that were more. Uh, while while the calls for efficiency come from one portion of that population, calls for uh, for concern and for um, postponement or for awareness come from another part of that population. The same group, the same population, um, and very much a concern that. Any of us could be one of those one of those people that is being used to move these agendas forward. Right. Um, whether or not this is something that specifically addresses him uh, and that is specifically something that he's got, I, I I don't have any research. I don't have any information on that. Um, but I recognize that that is a piece that, as I look at writers of the late '30s, especially writers who are looking at larger issues, start to be concerned about. You know, what are, what are we really doing? Where are we really putting our time? Where are we really putting our efforts? And 
are we aware of where those other efforts could lead us? Um, I, I, and I think when we start looking at um, the educated, um, and I hate calling it the educated, but but having a college degree, having a well, college we're, education. We're not talking about the smart. We're talking about the educated. Yeah, during that period of time, there was a, there was a there were definitely two classes uh, when it came when it when it came uh, when it came to that uh, awareness or availability of information, um, and there were divisions. Uh, within those and so I think that there's I think the conversation that went on probably went on in a much more delicate manner than it does today when we talk about our divisions I'm not so sure Um, but uh, that well uh, perhaps that's just us looking backwards in time I think probably What's your final thoughts on the book? Uh, I or on would, the story, I should say. yeah, I would definitely recommend that if somebody is looking for something different and interesting to read, this is a great candidate, especially because you can get it for free online. <laughs> uh, and, yes, you can, and it is a, a it's a pretty quick read. It's it took me. I think three sittings because I kept getting distracted, mm-hmm. but it's not. Uh, yeah, it's not a long read. It's uh, forty pages, and you know we were we were talking about some of the scientific fluff he put in there. He probably could have whittled it down to thirty-five. Uh, <laughs> but <it's>, uh, <laughs> if that had been his intention, I'm sure he would have. <laughs> right. No, it's. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. It's it, and it's a really good exercise, if nothing else, to get out of the modern mindset every once in a while and because you do have to you have to let go of what we know about biology now you have to let mm-hmm, go of mm-hmm. what we've done with physics how easy it is comparatively speaking to explore the antarctic it things are really different now and i think it's fun through fiction to go ahead and and uh, thought experiment yeah. with uh, with how things operated back then and uh, and also how people wrote back then and how different it is and it's uh, it's a great exercise to frankly learn how to read better. Sure. Um, this this is not a time when authors held your hand through a story; they presented the story and said, "Go ahead and keep up if you can." Versus now, you, uh, even some of the stuff that we read, uh, you know. Oh yeah, there's lots of midpoint exposition. It's uh, yeah, uh, they really do hold your hand through a lot of the story, and I think there are some valid points to that. There, there's some reasons to celebrate that. But anyway, uh, yes, definitely recommended. Blah blah blah. I talk a lot. <laughs> and and if I can, if if I if my final thoughts on this one, yeah, words, Todd, use my words. Thank you, Ken. Um, I th- I think this is one more example of good science fiction that doesn't necessarily have to become space opera. Um, J.W. Campbell, during his period of time, um, certainly was no stranger to space opera. Buck Rogers was was all the rage, and that probably drove a lot of the science fiction magazine-type uh, stories uh, for that period of time. But science fiction is about how science drives the fiction. And in some cases, that science can drive the fiction today. Um, and being aware of just how 
uh, just how much science invo is involved in our lives sometimes can give us a different perspective on what we think science fiction could or should be. Along with the Michael Crichtons of the world who decide that they're going to talk about science fiction from a standpoint of gene manipulation or from a standpoint of trying to go back in time, uh, which is something that we've always explored. Here's another one that talks about it from a standpoint of not manipulating our biology, but of something else having different biology than we are prepared for. Oh, man. And uh, I'm sorry, now I've got to bring this up because you did, and I, I just forgot to mention it earlier. You said this was the first story that uh, that got you to think of, what was it? Like, uh, you said, this is the first story that made me go something. Uh, this reminded me a lot of Sphere by Michael Crichton, yes. which, was, which was the first story that made me consider how, uh, how astrophysics works. I, I think I was nine at the time, and obviously most of it went over my head. But the you know the idea of a black hole and time travel and all this stuff uh, was really really eye opening. And so I think you you mentioned uh, something along those lines with the, uh, along those lines with this story. If I had read this when I was ten, I wonder if I would have been a lot more fascinated by biology than I was, Perhaps. and if I would have passed that freaking AP test. <laughs> Is there a little bit of uh, angst still left over oh, on that? Oh, man, we were taught, uh, Ryan and I actually took the same class uh, in the 11th grade. We took AP Biology, and it was taught by a football coach. And I, I think I know which football coach taught it. And uh, and it was, well, let's say the pass rate was not good for that <laughs> class. So, yeah, I'm a little bitter. It's the only one I failed. I'm, I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> So anyway, um, shall we call it? Let's call it. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and let's, uh, except for Todd, who's going to say one more thing. <laughs> and let's uh, – uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, you and I. Should we, should we tell everybody what we're thinking about doing for uh, the month of February? Sure. So uh, we are going to go into some space opera. Um, some of you out there probably are waiting for us to go into something that's a little bit more familiar. We're going to be taking, uh, taking on – Jack Campbell's uh, Dauntless, the oh, first right. book yeah, in yeah. the the first book in his series, yep. uh, the Lost Fleet. Uh, I don't think we'll be reading the, the entire Lost Fleet, but we'll at least take a look at that first book and we'll have some fun with that. So for those of you who have been waiting for us to take our science fiction leap into the stars, next time we will. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm super excited. I think I have somebody else who might join us for that too. Um, yes. So. I'll start over. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, a quick reminder, patreon.com slash legendarium. Uh, you can contribute to us monetarily there. Or if you can't do that, facebook.com slash the legendarium. If you haven't liked the page yet, please do so. And uh, please suggest the page to your friends. Uh, we do want to get as many people on there as we can because, like I said, we will be talking on Facebook about the possibility of a spinoff podcast. This one, uh, the Legendarium has become just popular enough at this point that uh, I, I would say we have enough people that we could support a second podcast potentially. So I will be very curious to hear to hear your thoughts on that. Um, don't be shy. I respond to every single private message that we get on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere. Um, you will never go without a response. So... Uh, once again, thanks uh, for hopefully reading along with us. If you haven't yet, go enjoy Who Goes There by J.W. Campbell. And once again, I'll link to that PDF in the comments. All right, guys, see you next week for The Dragon Reborn, book three in The Wheel of Time. Uh, oh, man, that's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, <laughs> okay, see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.